Good morning, church. What a blessing it is to be here with you all and to sing praises to our God and King. It's so good to see you. Today I have an opportunity to preach the Word of God to you. I've had opportunity twice so far to bring and open up the Word of God. And what I've been trying to do is have some consistency with the sermons. And that's hard to do, especially when there's great gaps of months in between the sermons. But what I've been trying to show us is that Christ is the prophet, priest, and king. And I've been looking at these Old Testament offices and how Christ fulfills them perfectly. Today we're on king. We've done prophet, we looked at Ezekiel speaking the word of life, and the dry bones come to life, they're animated by the Spirit and the word of God. And in June, we looked at priest, about Christ fulfilling the role as priest, he himself is the final sacrifice, and he is our high priest, he abolishes the old institute of sacrificing animals for the remission of sins, because he is the perfect spotless Lamb of God. And so today we're looking at kingship, that Jesus Christ is our king, but he's also the suffering servant. And we're in 2 Samuel 7, so if you have your Bible, please open to 2 Samuel 7. Kings were responsible with leading the nation in the light of God's word. They were warriors who fought and defended the nation from Israel's enemies. King David, which this passage is about, he does all these things. He defended Israel when no one else would, when others were scared. And through the strength of the Lord, he defeated God's enemies. Though he was not perfectly obedient, he tried to live and please the Father. You see, the, the kings of Israel were as sons to God. And David, as an obedient son, loves the word of God and wants to please him. Now we learn a lot in 2 Samuel about who David is and his desires. But we also learn a lot about who God is. That he's the faithful God. That his plans do come to pass. That he's with his people in the midst of suffering. And when he seems far off and his promises seem like they're not being fulfilled, they are fulfilled. I can't overstate the importance of 2 Samuel 7. Uh, It's called the covenant, the Davidic covenant. It's a covenant, which is a relationship. It's an easy way to understand it. It's a relationship between God and man. God is going to do something for David, something marvelous. I can't overstate how important this is to the rest of the Bible. The Old Testament prophets build out and flush out this promise And it has deep implications that aren't fully realized until Jesus Christ comes. And yet, they aren't fully realized until he comes again. So it's an important passage. And uh, I won't be able to say everything about the passage. It's a lengthy passage. Um, Read through it on your own time. Uh, Soak up the word of God and let it speak and minister to you. But Stephen Dempster, in his book, Dominion and Dynasty, he says this about this 2 Samuel passage. Thus is introduced one of the most important chapters in the Hebrew Bible. 2 Samuel 7, the matters of geography and genealogy 
have been settled. Jerusalem and David, Zion and Sion. From this one location in world geography and this one person in the world genealogy will flow blessing to the entire world and its inhabitants. This is the theme of this chapter that reverberates throughout the rest of the Bible. In this passage, David desires to build a house for God. But God does one better. He promises to build David a house. A kingdom with a throne. And it will be everlasting. So what we are about to read is the Davidic covenant as was stated and has huge implications for the rest of the word of God. And um, it has implication for our relationship between God. So let's pray and then we'll read the passage. Oh Lord, we thank you that you are faithful to your promises. That you are faithful to your people and you have been faithful to your servant David. Lord, though we are disobedient and flee from you, Lord, in our sin, you come to us and you embrace us and you remind us of how good you are. Lord, even in the midst of trouble, you are faithful to your people and you are building your church. And we, this is marvelous, Lord, and we thank you for Christ that he indeed is building his church. Amen. So the context for 2 Samuel, Saul has died. The abuser who we've been looking at, the relationship between David and Saul with Pastor Kenny these last two weeks, uh, Saul has died and uh, Jonathan has died. And David's response to these things is to grieve. The anointed one of God has been killed and his best friend has died. And David gets to work. He is the king of Israel now. So he gets to work conquering the people's and bringing Israel together as a single cohesive people. The tribes that were scattered are brought back, and David establishes his city, the city of David, which we call Jerusalem, and he brings in the Ark of the Covenant with dancing. He dances wildly before the procession, and he brings in the Ark of the Covenant. So God is with the people in a geographical location under a single king. So this is the context for this passage as we read it. So let's read the first three verses here. Now it's a long passage again, uh, so I won't read through the whole thing and then come back to it. We'll read through uh, verse by verse as I go through it. Um, 2 Samuel 7, 1 to 3. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So notice right away that the text does not refer to David by his name, but simply as the king. It's repeated three times in this verse. When the king lived in his house, the king said to Nathan, and Nathan said to the king. Now, of course, David is the king, but what this is doing is placing emphasis on David's kingship. He is the king now. 
And he is working. He wants to work for the Lord, even in his rest from his enemies. So we get a glimpse of David's heart for being not only obedient to God, but also wanting to work and serve God. He himself has a beautiful palace. So why should he not build God a temple? Honor God with a new dwelling, a permanent place to reside, a place to be worshipped in, a place that can bring in people from the other nations to worship God. David desires to honor God by working for him and building for him. But he also submits to God first. He goes to the prophet, who was the mouthpiece, the speaker of God's word. He had authority over the word of God. So by David going to Nathan, he's submitting his kingship to God. And now Nathan right away is excited, and he says, go, do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. But that's not a revelation from God. That's Nathan knowing that David is a just king, and he will do what is right. Verse 4, we see that the revelation from God comes in the same evening that David has met with Nathan. And God promises some wonderful things to David. Uh, And the plan that David has doesn't come to fruition how he envisions it, but it comes to greater fruition by the work of God. So let's read the fourth verse, verses 4 to verse 9, 2 Samuel 7. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel? who I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built a house of cedar for me? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of, ho- uh, the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies before you. Let's stop right there. David, now there's a shift in the language. David isn't referred to as the king, but he's referred to as my servant David. You see, David is both a king, but also a servant, a servant of the Lord. David's kingship is submitted to God, who is the only king. He is king, but he is king as a servant of God. And what God says in these few verses is really incredible. Because God is expressing what he has done. He's expressing his relationship to David and his people. He's showing and reminding David the wonders of his deeds and works. That he has been faithful to his people. And he has been faithful to David. Notice over and over one statement which resounds through the text. I have. God has done these things. He has been with his people. I have moved with them. And he has been with David. I have been with you wherever you went. See, God doesn't reside in a house or even in the tent. He is right there with his people. Do you think that 
David had the tabernacle when he was hiding in the caves from Saul? No. But God was right there with David, with his child and son. See, God resides with his people and he moves with them. He's alongside them and he fights their battles. God has been faithful to his people and God isn't interested in physical perishable buildings. Instead, he wants to build up a kingdom of obedience in his servants' hearts. A kingdom of obedience in his servants' hearts. You know, in this church, we're so blessed by the diversity of ages. We have very young believers in Christ, and we have very old, faithful servants who have persevered. And I'm sure that if you ask these believers, young believers, how God has been faithful to them, they might not have a long list because God is working in their life still. And if you asked one of these older believers, mature in their faith, how God has been faithful, you might be sitting there for hours because God has been faithful and they can testify to it through their lives. He has been with them through hardship. And God has been with us through these hardships in these days. And we can testify that God indeed has done these things. That he has been faithful to his church. God says, I will neither leave you nor forsake you. So we need to be a church that is encouraged by God's faithfulness through all generations. We need to be testifying to one another and building one another up. And declaring God as a faithful God. Just like we read in Psalm 89 today. The first verse. I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. That's what's happening in this text. God is showing what he has done for Israel. And what he has done for David. He's been with them. So let's read 2 Samuel 7. 9b to verse 11 here. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. There's a shift here from I have to I will. It's so apparent, it jumps out at you. The Lord declares to you that he will make you a great house. Something's happened. David's come before the Lord to build a temple. But God's totally reversed it. He doesn't want David to build him a temple. We know that Solomon builds the temple later. But he wants to build David a house. A dynasty. A family. And there's a play on the word house here in the Hebrew. Because one is the house of the Lord, which is the temple. And one is a house for David, which is a dynasty. Genealogical prosperity. 
That's what he's promising David, that he will have many descendants. God is going to build David a house. I will, I will, I will, declares the Lord. He's going to do it. He's faithful to his promises. You know, we make promises all the time. And very frequently, we don't uh, hold to them, to our word. And we love to build things. I uh, grew up doing carpentry work with my dad. And so when I got married, I was excited to do things for my wife, to woo her, to show off, you know, that I could build some things. And I promised to build her this coffee table. It hasn't been built yet. It's under my workstation. It hasn't been built yet. I haven't been faithful to my word, but one day it will be built. That's what I keep saying. You see, we can't trust the promises and the plans of man. Not even our own husbands. But we can trust in God who is faithful with his plans. I will, declares the Lord. So God is going to build a house for David. But how will God do this? How is God going to create a dwelling place uh, or a genealogical prosperity, many children for David? How is he going to build this house? Well, through the obedience of a son. Through the obedience of a son. Let's read uh, 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 17. This is point number two. David's dynasty and God's son. David's dynasty and God's son. I didn't say my first point. My first point was, uh, you probably saw it, but God, David's desire and God's promises. Now we move into David's dynasty and God's son. 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 17. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision Nathan spoke to David. In verse 12, a transition happens in the text, moving from promises that occurred during uh, David's life to promises that occur after his death. God's promise to give David, in the previous verses, peace from his enemies, rest, and he will make David's name great. He's promised to Israel that he's going to plant the people in the land. They won't be afflicted by enemies, as in the time of the judges. God is establishing his people. 
And now there's a transition to promises that will occur after David's death. When you lie down with your fathers, when you're about to die, after you've died, there will be one of David's offspring who will be given a kingdom that is established by Yahweh. And he will be the one to build the house, the temple for the Lord. And this relationship will be that of a father and a son. See, the son will be obedient to God as his father. And the son will be disciplined by the father. But despite this sin of disobedience, God's steadfast love will not depart from him as he took it from Saul. Then in verse 16, Yahweh, the Lord, restates that the Davidic dynasty will be established by an eternal throne and a throne and kingdom that will be forever. So what emerges is a sandwich, a sort of truth sandwich, if you will, with an A-B structure. The first point A is in verse 13, David's dynastic house and eternal throne. And then in the middle, verse 14 to 15, is the relationship between the father and son. And then verse 16 restates that the Davidic kingdom and eternal throne will be established. So sandwiched in the center is the meat, is the good stuff. God is going to establish an eternal throne and kingdom. It's going to be established by a father-son relationship of obedience. And again, repeated, God is going to establish the eternal throne and kingdom. So the father-son relationship is placed as the most central and the most important aspect of the Davidic covenant and stresses the need for obedience to God on the part of the king. Now, this is called, and I don't want to bog us down with theological phrases, this is called an unconditional covenant. So that means that there's no conditions. God is going to do it. But it's more complex than that. There is a condition of obedience. This text is actually repeated later in 1 Chronicles 17, when the people of Israel come out of exile, and there's no more kings anymore. And in that text, the part of disobedience and the son sinning is not found in it. But the son who's obedient and God's steadfast love is established and put on him is there. So what's happened? Well, Saul, David, and Saul, Saul and David and Solomon and the others, all are disobedient kings and they fail. And they get put into exile as a result of this. The people are disciplined. And the sons are disciplined. The kings are disciplined. But coming out of the exile, there is hope for this to become true. The kingdom that's eternal. And the eternal king who will reign on the throne. And it's talking about Jesus Christ, who is obedient. Christ does not sin. He is the fully obedient son who will establish the kingdom. And I'd encourage you to read 1 Chronicles 17 and compare it to this uh, passage here and see the parallels. Peter Gentry comments on this truth sandwich, and he says this, the chiastic literary structure, which is that truth sandwich I said, 
actually portrays in a visual manner the nature of the covenant. Faithfulness and obedience in the father-son relationship is crucial, but it is supported on both sides by the faithfulness and sure promises of Yahweh to David, uh, to David's descendants, kingdom and throne. The order is the same both before and after the chiastic structure, that true sandwich. So visually, God is showing us that he has and he will be faithful to his people, to his children, and to his king. He requires his children to be obedient and to love and worship him. But on either side, in front and behind, are God's promises and his faithfulness. He is before us and behind us, or behind us and for, before us, rather. But David isn't living in full obedience to God throughout his kingship. Just a few chapters later, in chapter 11, David is looking over at his kingdom, and he falls under temptation. And he acts out his temptation and commits adultery with Bathsheba. And then she gets pregnant, and he tries to cover it up with Uriah the Hittite. And he brings Uriah the Hittite from the battlefield and wants him to sleep with his wife. So it looks like he got her pregnant. And when that doesn't work, because Uriah is faithful, he's an obedient servant, David has him killed. See, we've, in the past few weeks, we've been talking about abuse and abusers. David is an abuser here. David is an abuser. He abuses Bathsheba and he abuses Uriah. He kills him. But David is also a man after God's own heart. And Nathan comes to him, right, and rebukes him with the parable. And what does David do? He mourns. He's grieved by what he does, he's done. There is repentance. But what is the result of David's sin? Genealogical death. The child from Bathsheba is going to die. And more so, your, your sons, they're going to turn against you. And they're going to try to take your throne from you. And we're, we're wondering, God, how are you going to do this promise? How are you going to make David's house eternal when there's conflict within it? And Solomon comes on the scene, doesn't he? And he's the least likely son to be king, but he becomes king. And he's, hum he's, he's humble. He asks for wisdom. And he builds the temple. David spends the rest of his life and his years designing, saving, putting away so that Solomon can build the, the house of the Lord. And Solomon does, and people come from all over the world to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to go in the temple and worship him. But it doesn't last. Solomon has many wives, and his polygamy turns him away from God. His polygamy causes his apostasy, and he rejects God. And then Israel goes from bad king and good king, and bad king and good king. And then finally God is fed up. And he disciplines his child in the exile. And then when they come back, we have the prophets. 
And the prophets are speaking throughout the exile as well. And they remember God's faithfulness and his promise. The mighty oak tree of David's line is reduced to a stump. It's been cut down by the Lord. How is God going to establish David's house forever when he's reduced it to a stump? Well, Isaiah 11 verse 1 has the answer. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And Jeremiah 30 verse 9. But they shall serve the Lord their God, and David their king I will raise up for them. And Ezekiel 37, verse 24. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. Is this talking about David that we know? The shepherd boy? No. This is talking about the true heir, the better David, the one who grows up out of the stump, the root of Jesse. It's talking about Jesus Christ, who's fully obedient to God and whose God's steadfast love does not depart from. And Christ doesn't come as an earthly king comes. He doesn't come with mighty armies arrayed in armor to conquer the world. He comes in humble humanity. And he comes as a suffering servant. And that's how he achieves the kingdom of God. That's how he lays the foundation for the kingdom. is through his suffering and through the work of atonement on the cross. David's heir is going to build a house. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. And Jesus has created the foundation for this kingdom. I have. I will. You see, I have and I will. God has been faithful and he's going to continue being faithful. And he's building his church even now. And he's not far from us. He is right here with us. Just as God reminded David, I have been with you wherever you went. Jesus is with us wherever we go. So if you're tr not trusting in Jesus as your Savior, and if you cannot say He is the Lord of your life, you're still an enemy of God's. You're under the condemnation and the curse. You're living for the ruler of this world who's been defeated already. And you're exactly who Jesus came to save. You, us, we are sinners. We're the wretched ones who've rejected God. We're the disobedient ones. We're the unfaithful sons and daughters. But Christ has been faithful. And through his faithfulness, his obedience, we share in the kingdom. And we're God, called God's children. Benjamin Grovesner, uh, in his book, The Temper of Jesus Christ Towards His Enemies and His Grace to the Chief of Sinners, he's an 18th century pastor. And he was quoted recently in Dane Ortland's, Ortland's book, uh, Gentle and Lowly, in the end notes, I believe. But this is the quote here. Uh, he says this about us. 
about the wretched one. Listen to this. If you meet that poor wretch who thrust his spear into my side, tell him that there's another way, a better way of coming at my heart. Tell him even my heart's love. Tell him that if he will repent and look upon me whom he has pierced and will mourn, then I will cherish him in the very bosom which he has wounded. Tell him that he shall be he shall find the blood which he has shed to be an ample atonement for the sins of shedding it. And tell him from me that he will put me to more pain and displeasure by refusing the offer of my blood than when he first drew it forth. Wow. Wow. You see, Jesus came for the wretched ones. He came for us. We were the one who pierced his side. We were enemies. We were far from God. But Jesus has brought us into the family of God. And we are called children. Children of the living God. And Jesus Christ's kingdom is not built with stones that can fall and topple or break. It's built on forgiveness and the repentance of sins. And Christ submits to the cross, to the plan that God has revealed to him in perfect obedience. Not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. God will build his kingdom through the obedience of a son. And that has happened. Let's move to verse, or to point three. David's worship and God's instruction for mankind. God's instruction for mankind. Now this is a lengthy passage of worship. And here we see David is amazed at what God has said he will do. And he goes into the tabernacle. And he praises and worships God. And he prays that this will happen. And he has a redemptive perspective we would say. He has a redemptive perspective. 18 to 29. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. This is instruction for mankind. O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you and there is no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Israel, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people to be your people forever. And O oh Lord God, 
you became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken, and your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, O God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. With your blessings shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. David is awestruck by God's promises and by God's faithfulness. And he is praising God for his people whom he has redeemed. And he is rejoicing that he is the servant of God. That he has been brought into the work of building the temple. Not as he planned, but as God planned. And he is captivated by the Lord. I want to draw our attention to verse 19. I won't have time to exegete all of, all of this praise and worship, but David is so in love with the Lord. But in verse 19, David says something remarkable. Listen to this. Highlight it. Underline it. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. See, David is aware of the future implications of this covenant. That certain aspects of it will happen, not immediately, but for a great while to come. Not in the life of his children, not even their children. Further, further down the line. Not until the son of Joseph, who's the offspring of David, who Christ comes from. Will this come to fruition? I thought this was a covenant made specifically for David and his family tree. For his heir. What does this have to do with mankind? What is the instruction for mankind? Well, Jesus says it throughout his ministry, doesn't he? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. This indeed is instruction for mankind. The eternal king and kingdom has arrived. And it's found in no one except Jesus Christ. And his eternal gospel, which is not just for Israel, but for the whole world. For all people. He's brought many sons to glory through his obedience at the cross. Many sons and many daughters from all tribes and languages. Not just Israel, not just David's line, his physical line. You see, now we are members, those who profess Christ as Lord and Savior, we are members of a household. We're members of the household of faith. And we're called the church, which is the kingdom of God. The church is the kingdom of God. His people. 
And we can never be revoked entry into the kingdom if we're His children. We bear His seal. We have the Holy Spirit. And what's the Holy Spirit? A deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. See, we share in Christ's inheritance. The world is ours through Jesus Christ. Christ's blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness and the foundation for this great temple is built on the blood of Christ. As much as we are benefactors of this covenant, we're also servants and workers of the covenant. We're God's covenantal people. So we have a part to play in the construction of this building. And it's not a small part. It's a big part. We're to go and instruct mankind with repentance, with the gospel. We're to go and declare the good news that the king has come and he set the captives free. When Jesus is going through Jerusalem and he sees the temple of Herod, which is the third temple that's built, um, he says something remarkable. Remember what he says? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up again. I will raise it up again. What's Jesus talking about? He's talking about his body. His body's the temple. And in the, in the New Testament, the church is called Christ's body. And we're called living stones. What does it mean to be a living stone? Well, Christ, as the great architect and worker, has gone into the quarry of this world, and he's found harsh stones that don't quite fit together, and he's working on them, building them up, building up his church. And we have that responsibility too, to build up one another, to encourage one another, to mourn with those who mourn and grieve with those who grieve and rejoice with those who rejoice. We're to be building Christ's church and Christ invites us into his work just as David was invited into this work with God. We need to submit to that. Now before we close, I want to show a passage of Christ shaping a stone for his kingdom. This is found in Luke 18, uh, verse 35 to 45. This is close to his passion as he's coming to Jerusalem. After this will be the triumphal entry. This is what the narrator Luke says. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, listen to this, Son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were, sorry, and those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. This man was broken in body and spirit. 
He was blind and a beggar. And those close to him said, quiet down. But he cries out in repentance all the more. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, he said to him, Lord, sorry. (laughs) It's hard to read when you have tears in your eyes. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Christ is building his church. He's shaping stones. He's building us up. And he's bringing in the people to worship him. What happens after Christ heals this man, forgives him of his sins? The people rejoice. He rejoices. He starts worshiping. What happens after God gives David his vision for the temple? His building? Building up the house of the Lord? David goes before the Lord in the tabernacle and worships God. This indeed is instruction for mankind. Christ is building up his church. He is the obedient son. And now we're called to be obedient sons and daughters. We're called to build up the church, to preach the gospel, to love one another, to encourage one another. We are living stones. And Christ, the stone that the builders rejected, he has become the cornerstone. And he's coming again as the capstone to complete the work of the church. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He is at the right hand of the Father now. And He has all authority. And one day He's coming again to receive His church and to present her the temple to his Father. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is King and He reigns. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You that You are building Your church and we thank You for Christ, for His death and resurrection. And Lord, our hearts are heavy, Lord, because we build up our lives on sand on things that shift and move. Lord, we pray that your people would build their lives on Christ. We pray that we'd be living stones, that we'd love one another, that we would do the will of the Father in obedience. Lord, our prayer is the prayer of David. One thing I desire above all else, that I can go into the temple and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let us gaze on your beauty. In his name we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.